Well, good morning, everybody. I wonder what life looks like for you in the room this morning. It's it's been uh, it's a bit of, been a bit of fun and games, but we've 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 done well and we're here. So it's great to have you with us this morning. I want to talk about the art of apology today. I wonder what life looks like for you in your all cooped up season. I actually perhaps slightly less cooped up than we were before, but nonetheless still all cooped up. And some of us are a bit frayed at the edges. Uh, some of us are a little bit tank empty. And I wonder if in this season we might need to use the art of apology even more than ever. Uh, I know that's true for myself. I'm going to tell a story. Last week, it was about 2pm one afternoon, and uh, I was dividing myself about five different ways. I had three kids doing school at home. I had work responsibilities, and I was also trying to be like a normal human being and cook and answer the phone and all those sorts of things. And in that moment, I was trying to do something... uh, which wasn't working for me. My work task was to upload a file to Dropbox and the little um, spinny circle was just spinning infinitely and it would not upload and my frustration levels went up to about here and at that precise moment, my beautiful 11-year-old son called out and asked for help on something that he was doing on a project and it was something I didn't think he needed to be doing and this is what I did. I went out and said, Oh, for goodness sake, just get it done. You don't need to put that file cropped just like that in the heading. You're just stuffing around and I need you to just get it done. Yes, that's exactly what I did. I spoke to him like that from my frayed at the edges, uh, tank half empty, uh, heat of the moment moment. I spoke to him like that and I wished nothing else on earth than to be able to push control Z and have that whole scene reversed and erased. But I couldn't. So in that moment, I had two choices. One choice would be to turn and walk away, you know, lecture uh, delivered. I was right. He was wrong. Walk away and, and maybe come back half an hour later and just be really nice and pretend it all never happened and sweep it under the carpet. Or my other choice was to take a deep breath, pause for a minute, collect myself, reflect on the fact that I am only human and that I am a bit frayed at the edges, come down to his level and issue a heartfelt apology. Well, I chose the second. I took a breath, a big breath, and I came down to his level and I looked at him and I said, I'm so sorry, buddy. I raised my voice and I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. I was frustrated about something and I took my frustrations out on you and it wasn't good enough. And I'm really sorry. I can see that you're doing some hard work here and I don't want to do anything that makes you feel bad. So I really apologise. The heart, the, the, the art of apology, it's not easy. And you'll also notice that I didn't speak about the other 45 times during the last few weeks when I haven't apologised well because I don't always get it right and it is really, really hard. Apologising is hard, but if we value relationships, then we are going to need to learn the art of the apology. Last week, Troy spoke about a story uh, from Genesis, the book of beginnings, about 11 brothers who were trying to get along and in that moment... 10 of the brothers were feeling very jealous towards their youngest brother and they made some poor choices. They actually sold that youngest brother into slavery, which actually was a step up 
from killing him, which was their original plan. So they sold him into slavery. And I want to pick up a little bit of what happened in that story. There's a moment in the story where they've sold him into slavery and they pick up his favourite coat and they rip it to shreds and they smear a bit of blood on it just for good theatre and they come back to the father and this is what they did. In Genesis 37, 32, it says, They brought the robe of many colours to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. They didn't even own the lie of their behaviour, let alone their behaviour. They just left it to their father to figure out for himself what might have happened. I think there are a few reasons why we don't own our behaviour, why we don't own our mistakes. I've got three. There's probably dozens of them, but the three I was thinking about are here. First one is the lack of accountability. It is just way too easy to bury something. It is way too easy to just keep quiet, stay shush about it, put, sweep it under the carpet, smooth it over and pretend it never happened. This whole idea of lack of accountability is one reason why it's really hard to own our mistakes. The second one is because sometimes there is just too much at stake. We are desperate to save face. We're desperate to not lose uh, our preferred image that we want people to see of us. We're, we're fearful of losing our authority or fearful of losing our credibility. I heard something on the news a little while ago. There's this new phrase doing the, the rounds where um, a politician or a premier or someone might speak out too fast or too aggressively on something. And I'll notice the phrase that they're using later is walk back from that. So that person might have said that, but now they're walking back from that. They're walking it back and, um, or distancing themselves from a comment. And I wonder what is going on there about our ownership of our mistakes and our words and our choices if we can simply say, oh, I'm going to walk back from that. The third reason I think that it's really hard to own our mistakes uh, is because we are so busy defending our portion or, or working out what portion of the problem is ours and calculating percentages that somewhere in there we conclude, I'm not going to own all of it, so therefore I'm not going to own any of it. And I think that's just another reason why we don't own our mistakes. Because we're human, we're not perfect. Trust me, we're not. Uh, we make mistakes, we just do. And if we don't own, take ownership of those mistakes, we don't grow and our relationships will suffer. So today I want to pick up the story of Joseph and his brothers at the height of Joseph's influence in Egypt. Joseph's the governor of the land in Egypt and there's been a great drought and they've gathered up all the grain and it is Joseph's job to distribute the food to those people who are needy. Now Joseph's brothers are over in their land in Cana and they are suffering the drought too and they're hungry. And so their father says to them, there's grain in Egypt, why don't you brothers go uh, and buy grain from Egypt? So they do. They do the journey, they come to Egypt, and lo and behold, they come face to face with that long-lost brother, Joseph. Now Joseph recognises them. They don't recognise him, but he recognises them and doesn't reveal who he is. He doesn't reveal his identity. But what he does is he starts to question them. He says, where, where are you from? Who, who's your father? What are you here for? Are you, are you spies? 
He starts to question them. And their answer is, we are 12 brothers of one father. The youngest is at home and one is no more. I wonder if Joseph drew breath that moment when they said, one is no more. I wonder if he drew breath and said, do they own this? Maybe they're, they're taking ownership. Maybe he's buying himself some time in this moment. Maybe he's um, uh, going toing and froing between re- revenge uh, and forgiveness. So he does this thing where he says, there's another brother, a younger one back home. Will you guys go home and get him and bring him back? But one of you has to stay here. I'm keeping Simeon here. He can go in prison while you guys go back and get the other brother. So they do. They go back and they get the youngest brother, Benjamin, and they bring him back before Joseph. And then Joseph tests them for a second time. There's this second movement in the story that he does where he sets them up to fail. He hides his prized cup in the bag of one of the brothers. So they go off on their way home thinking all is well and then the guards stop them and check the bags and lo and behold in Benjamin's bag is Joseph's favourite prized cup. So they get brought back before Joseph and Joseph says, this is not good enough. Benjamin has been found guilty. He can stay here with me and be my slave and the rest of you can go. And in that moment, he's testing them. He's testing them for truthfulness and he's testing them for ownership of what they did in the past. There's this wonderful moment in the story where Reuben stands up, the oldest brother, the biggest brother, and he says, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this again. We've lost one brother once before. We will not do it again. No. And he says, keep me and send Benjamin home. I wonder what that did in Joseph's mind, whether that just tipped him right over the edge and said, they do get it. They do understand. They are taking ownership. Now, I would love to hear what their apology sounded like. I would love to hear if they figured out how to actually fully, properly apologise to Joseph. And the reality is we don't hear what their apology is. But as I thought about it, I figured I've got some piece of advice that I would like to give those brothers if I had the opportunity in order to prepare their apologies well. So my first piece of advice is this. Never ruin an apology with excuses. They, they might be tempted to say, well, look, we're sorry, but you were such a spoiled brat. You can't hardly blame us. You really did provoke us. No, don't ruin an apology with excuses. The tip is stay away from things like if and but or offering any excuses. Those things just qualify the apology. If your intention is to apologise, then just apologise. Don't turn it into a lecture. Don't turn it into a learning opportunity. Don't use it as an opportunity to wound them further. Just apologise. My second piece of advice to those brothers is this. Take ownership of your actions. Don't say, well, we're sorry if you felt hurt by what we did, because that is not an apology. Uh, That's just saying that you're only sorry that the other person was upset about it. You need to take ownership of the problem that you created. So don't say, I'm sorry, but everyone was doing it. Don't say, 
well, other people have done way worse than us. I mean, don't forget, we could have killed you and we didn't. Don't say that you didn't really mean it. Just say what you did. And I wonder if those brothers needed to say, we are sorry for being jealous. We are sorry for scheming your death. We're sorry for throwing you in the pit. We're sorry for lying to your father. We're sorry that everything happened to you. And by the way, we're sorry that we never came to find you. That would be an apology. My third one is demonstrate changed behaviour. Mend your ways so that you don't repeat that behaviour and therefore have to apologise for the same thing again and again. And I feel like those brothers kind of did that in that moment when they were offered a similar situation. They actually chose differently. They demonstrated their changed behaviour. My fourth one, and this is really big, is offer an apology with no strings attached. An apology has to be a gift that you offer. It's not a duty that you perform to get a certain outcome. It's a gift. It's an offering. There have to be no strings attached. Don't require the other person to do anything. Don't even require them to to forgive you. They might forgive you, but that's theirs to do, not yours. Yours is just to apologise. I guess my my four pieces of advice will never actually get to those brothers. That story's long gone in history. And we don't even get to hear about how they apologised because the moment they demonstrated that they'd changed, Joseph began running towards them uh, with forgiveness. He offers them forgiveness before they'd even began to imagine what their apology might look like. The end of the story goes a bit like this. Joseph hears what they're, what they're saying and how they're interacting about their brothers uh, and he reveals himself to them and then he draws them closer. He says, come closer, and there's a little bit of fear and trepidation because they're just not sure uh, what's going to happen. But he draws them in and there's crying and there's hugging and kissing and there's reassurances uh, and he tells them not to be angry at themselves uh, and it's a really great moment. And then he sends them home to collect their father. So they do. They go home and they pack up the tribe, they pack up the wives and the kids and the animals and the flocks and all of their belongings and they begin the trek of moving their lives to Egypt. And while they were still a long way off, Genesis 46, 29 says this, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. I don't know about you, But I've been transported to another story of a father and a son running together while one was still a long way off with apology and forgiveness and reconciliation. It's the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells a story of a man whose son asked for his inheritance early, the whole lot of the money, and he took the money and he spent that money on wild living. And when that money was run out, and he was hungry, and he was starving, it says that he came to himself. It actually says he came to himself and thought, you know what, there's plenty of food back where my father's workers are. Perhaps I'll go home and I'll apologise to my father and I'll ask him if he'll make me one of his workers. It actually says, oh, that's not the right one. It actually says 
that his apology that he was rehearsing is, uh, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God and I'm not worthy to be your son, but please make me one of your hired hands. To be honest, I kind of would like to rework his apology. I, I feel like there might be something missing in there. Uh, I, I, I feel myself wondering, is he actually sorry for the way he treated his father or is he just sorry that his plans didn't work out? I guess I'm not clear, but, but his actions later show me uh, the answer. But the reality is this story is not about the son's apology. This story is about the father's forgiveness. Because while that son was still a long way off, that father saw him coming and ran towards him and offered forgiveness before that well-rehearsed apology of his had even left his lips. It doesn't matter about whether or not he apologised well because that father was running towards him. And I guess... It's not different to the way in which God forgives us. His forgiveness is offered to us a long way before we are even beginning the preparation of our apology. While we were still a long way off, while we were even still sinners, while our backs were turned from our Creator, while we were living life our own way, contrary to the way God would have us live, Christ died for us. That's Romans. While we were still a long way off, God chased us down with his forgiveness. So I guess then my question is, what's the purpose of apology then? And I wonder if there are two reasons for apology. Um, The first is position and the second is posture. So I just want to speak firstly to position. I think an apology positions the person who has been harmed. Uh, When you apologise to someone, it shows them that their feelings are valid, that something wrong happened and that you are taking ownership for it. It shows them their value. It shows them that they're not wrong, that they're important enough for you to be real and vulnerable with them in that moment. It positions them. The second thing apology does is it postures us. The person who did wrong changes their posture to humility. If you look at any of the great works of art about that prodigal son returning to his father, that son is always drawn on his knees in a posture of humility. Uh, And I think that's what we need to do in, in apology we need to posture ourselves with humility. This posture is admitting that we are not perfect, that we got it wrong and that we need to change. A bit like Troy's little posture over here on his knees. It's a posture that we need to assume. Now, I'm not saying that every apology needs to be physically on our knees, but our attitude needs to be one of humility uh, coming before the person. And then we are better placed to receive the grace and forgiveness that might come. In the person of Jesus, God ran towards us while we were still a long way off and offered his forgiveness. But if someone doesn't think that they've done anything wrong, 
then they're not actually going to receive openly any forgiveness that might be offered. They don't think there's anything to be forgiven for and therefore forgiveness won't be taken up. It's actually really hard to receive a gift when your back is turned. If we're too proud to admit that we are broken and that we get it wrong, then when forgiveness gets offered, we won't accept it. We just won't. It will miss us. In the Bible, the idea of apologising is called repentance. And it's the idea of turning back towards God and recognising that he is God and that we are in need of his forgiveness. We as humanity have gone our own way. We've done this life the way we think we should. And we need to express regret that we live that way. We need to apologise and we need to take action to change. That's what repentance is. It's a posture that we assume before God. And repentance doesn't change God. Repentance changes us. I think that's really important. Repentance doesn't change God. Repentance changes us. It postures us to receive God's forgiveness, that forgiveness that he offered to us long before we had even begun to craft our apology. So just as apology validates the person who's been hurt and postures the person who did the wrong thing, so repentance postures God, sorry, positions God as God and postures us as his children, broken and in need of his forgiveness. Like our three stories today, uh, the, the, like our three stories today, the father in the, in the story of the prodigal son does not leave his son on his knees. He lifts him back up and restores him, puts a robe on him, a ring on his finger and throws a great party. God will not leave us in repentance and on our knees. And like those brothers where Joseph invites them back in, he does not leave them far off and distant. He invites them in to be family. And like my son, when he received his apology from me, our relationship didn't stay fractured. He didn't end up with a wound that never healed. And hopefully he grows up having been modelled what a real apology looks like and what humility looks like. It's about that deep heart lesson that reorienting ourselves uh, before God places us in a position where we can reorient ourselves before people. Now, I'm not going to pretend that apology is easy. It isn't. It's really complicated. We could probably talk for weeks about all the complexities and nuances of all the different relationships and why apology is difficult and why it doesn't always work and how we sometimes get it wrong. But the reality is, is if we are able to posture ourselves before God and apologise, something shifts inside of us and we are better able to posture ourselves before others and own our mistakes, own the things that we've done, take responsibility for them and offer apologies. You may be somebody today who's got something in their mind uh, where an apology is really needed. And I would invite you to take some time and to ask God, "What, what will an apology in this look like? What do I need to own? How can I be real about it? 
what do I need to do to position that person uh, fairly and what do I need to do to posture myself in humility in order to deliver uh, that apology? Will you bite the bullet? Will you eat humble pie? Will you take a risk and offer that humility? Will you fall to your knees even if the apology isn't received, even if forgiveness isn't extended? I wonder what you'll do with the apology that you're thinking of in your head. Or you may be somebody who's never before considered the idea of an apology to God. You might find that if you posture yourself before God and you say, God, I don't always get it right, you might find that God saw you coming a long way off before you even thought about apologising and offered a forgiveness and an embrace and a belonging that you've never even dreamed about. And that once your apology uh, is delivered, that God lifts you up uh, and, 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 and does something brand new and amazing with your life. I wonder if that's the apology that you need to make. This idea of um, the season that we're in, it, it might place us really amazingly to do something really radical in terms of apology. We might be in a situation where we need to apologise more than ever because we're living in closer quarters, life isn't as normal, we're a bit more frayed at the edges, our tanks are a little bit emptier, life is a little bit more difficult and we have to be a little bit more agile. Whatever it is, I wonder if you might take that risk and deliver more apologies and humble yourselves more often. But I guess my bigger point is that if we can do that before God, then God will actually equip us to more easily deliver that to others. And I think the two go together. My final thought is often the heat of the moment situations where apology never emerges are in those really big seasons of life where there's been a death or where there's you know, a, a wedding or where there's an important birthday or where something really big is going on and something was said or something wasn't said or an action happened. And they are the ones that actually divide relationships long into the future. And I suspect a pandemic would also fit into that category of a really big, different life situation. And I would hate for us to be in a situation where we did something wrong, we said something and we smoothed it over and we um, swept it under the carpet or we were too proud to admit our fault or we, we just didn't do the hard work of humbling ourselves and assuming a posture of I'm only human and I got it wrong and I'm going to do better. I'm sorry. Uh, I wonder if that's something that we can do in this season. Let's make this unprecedented time and posture ourselves so that we might be part of the great restoration story that God is doing not just in us, but through us in the world. So kids, I wonder if you've drawn a picture and of an apology. I wonder if your person who's apologising is on their knees, like Troy in his little pipe cleaner scene, or I wonder if you know your person has written something or you've drawn a picture Send them in to us. We would love to be able to get them up online and show a few of your pictures. Send them on Facebook. Put them on Facebook so we can see them um, and get them happening. That would be great. 
I wonder what an apology scene looks like for you. I'm going to pray uh, and I would invite you, if you would like to join me, praying is talking to God and I'm going to do that now and I'm going to speak to him specifically about the posture of apology. Let's pray. Loving God, thanks that you love us. Thanks that you care for us. Thank you that while we were still a long way off, you came running with apology in your heart, sorry, with forgiveness in your heart before we even had apology on our lips. We thank you for that and we accept that. God, I pray for all those moments when we need to humble ourselves, when we need to fall to our knees and we need to admit that we didn't get it right, that you will help us to do that. You'll give us the wisdom of the words to say and you'll give us the grace to deliver it. So God, thank you. Uh, Thank you that you love us and thank you for your forgiveness given to us freely. Amen. Let's listen to this song.